Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Uh, at this time, I'd like to invite Anna Cifuentes to come, and she will be reading in Spanish, after which Pastor Abe Cho will deliver our sermon. Good morning. <clears throat> Today, God speaks to us from Job chapter 28, verses 9 to 15, 20 to 24, and 28. La mano del minero ataca el pedernal y pone al descubierto la raíz de las montañas. Abre túneles en la roca y sus ojos contemplan todos sus tesoros. Anda en busca de las fuentes de los ríos y trae a la luz cosas ocultas. Pero ¿dónde se halla la sabiduría? ¿Dónde habita la inteligencia? Nadie sabe lo que ella vale, pues no se encuentra en este mundo. Aquí no está, dice el océano, aquí tampoco, responde el mar. No se compra con el oro más fino, ni su precio se calcula en plata. ¿De dónde, pues, viene la sabiduría? ¿Dónde habita la inteligencia? Se esconde, en los ojos de, se esconde de los ojos de toda criatura, hasta de las aves del cielo se oculta. La destrucción y la muerte afirman, algo acerca de su fama llegó a nuestros oídos. Solo Dios sabe llegar hasta ella. Solo Él sabe dónde habita. Él puede ver los confines de la tierra. Él ve todo lo que hay bajo los cielos. Y dijo a los mortales, temer al Señor, eso es sabiduría. Apartarse de mal, del mal, eso es discernimiento. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, many historians of the church would say that the early church won the entire Western world not because of the eloquence of its preachers or the strength of its apologetic arguments, but the early church won the entire Western world because of the faithful witness of the martyrs. It was the ability of people in what was then a very cruel and uncertain world, an ability of ordinary people to be able to face suffering with hope. Uh, that they saw in the death of the martyrs a power that drained suffering of all of its fear, of all the dread that it held over people. There was a powerful public witness that came along with that. And during the season of Lent here at Redeemer East Harlem, we've been going through a sermon series called The Public Wis uh, Witness, where we're talking about lessons in suffering. What might it look like? for a Christian today to understand what those early martyrs believed, to be able to have resources to face suffering well. That in many respects, you know, some people can make the case that today's modern society is a, is a society that gives its people the least resources to handle suffering. And in a world like that, what might it look like for Christians to be able to access the gospel in a way that drains suffering of its power. Now, the book of Job is what we've been going through this, over these months, and we've been just giving it, uh, snippets of it. But the book of Job, Job is arguably one of the greatest works ever written on the topic of suffering. It's probably, some of you may know, probably the oldest book in the entire Bible. It very, very likely predates the book of, books of Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, the first five books. 
Scholars date it probably all the way back to 1700 BC. So that makes it an almost 4,000 year old text. So the words that we're hearing on Sundays are words that have spanned literally almost four millennia. It's an incredible thing to think about. Uh, but what it also does for us as modern people is that it gives us a perspective on suffering that is profoundly ancient and maybe helps us to see how limited our modern view of the world is. So let me give you a quick overview. Up until now, we've been basically looking at what I would call the first act of Job. So I like to envision Job as, as kind of like a modern play, like a very spare, modern kind of a setting. But on that stage, is in the first act of Book of Job, is really just four actors. There's Job and his three friends. And the entire first act is just the four of them talking about the topic of suffering. It's a dialogue. In the second act, a fourth friend shows up. His name is Elihu. And at the very end, of course, God himself shows up. The second act is a bunch of monologues. This is more dialogues. This is now a bunch of monologues. But in between act one and act two is the text that we're coming to today. That many scholars would say chapter 28 in the book of Job is the intermission. And what's unique about this intermission is that at halftime, the playwright himself actually steps onto the stage and attempts to explain to the audience what he's trying to show you through the play. And that's what we get to look at. And if I were to try to boil down this entire chapter, and it was a lot of text, but if I were to try to boil down the entire chapter, the playwright is trying to say this. The claim of the playwright is at the animating center of the universe is not a blind principle of cause and effect, but the animating center of the universe is the wisdom of a God who sees you. And if you can understand that, you'll be able to face suffering. Let me say that again. The animating center of the universe is not a blind, impersonal principle of cause and effect, but it's the wisdom of a God who sees you and loves you. And if you can grasp that, you'll find resources to face suffering. So if we work through this text, it shows us the wisdom that we need to drain suffering of its power. So first it shows us two wrong ways to approach suffering, and then it shows us the right way. So we'll look at each one of those. Okay, so first, let's look at the first wrong way. Uh, the author, the playwright, begins uh, by essentially saying, first, wisdom to face suffering can never be gained through scientific reasoning. That's the first point. The wrong way to try to get this wisdom is through scientific reasoning. Let me look at, read verses 9 through 12 to you again. <clears throat> and here's what it says. What he's trying to get us to envision is the technology of ancient people learning how to mine the roots of mountains and get jewels out of the mountains. So he says this, people assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all its treasures. Verse 11, they search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. And then verse 12, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? And the point that the playwright is trying to make here is he would look around the world at, you know, this again is almost 4,000 years ago, but he would look around and marvel at human ingenuity. 
he would look at all the technology that would go into human beings being able to dig down to the roots of mountains. And when they dug deep enough, it wasn't just darkness that they drew out of the mountains. It wasn't just dirt or rock. They found jewels. They found things that sparkle at the very core of the earth, and it would utterly leave them speechless. Or in verse uh, 11, when they talk about they search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. In the ancient mind, the sources of rivers was the place where life begins. And so he would look at humans' ability to dam up different rivers and say, we've laid bare the very sources of life, the very sources of all human knowledge. Like we've gone and we've seen everything that the world has to offer. And so here is the author marveling at human ingenuity, human technology. And yet, even in the face of such incredible advancements, he asks the question, and yet, where can wisdom, the wisdom to face suffering, where can that be found? And this is a perspective, I would say, an ancient critique that I think we modern people desperately need. Because we live today in an age and a society that's drowning in data. We have data, and we have metadata, and then we have meta-metadata, and then all our metadata gets sold for more data. We are a society drowning in information. Like we joke in our family, whenever my kids ask me a question, I'd be like, I don't know. You have answer, we have answer machines in our pockets. Ask, let's ask the answer machines. Because information, we are flooded by information. And yet as a society, I think we've confused information for knowledge. And we've confused knowledge for wisdom. Because how is it possible that we can be a society with all the information, all the data we could possibly dream of, and yet still be a society that can be so prone to things like conspiracy theories, echo chambers, ideologies, because we've mistaken information for wisdom? We can have all the technology, all the skill, all the ability to manipulate the created world around us. We can ask the questions, can we do something? And the answer is yes, we could figure it out, but we never stop to ask the question, shall we, should we do something? There's a great example of this. One of my favorite theologians is a, a missionary theologian named Leslie Newbegin, and he would tell the story of the original laboratory back before World War II where the scientists finally discovered how to split the atom. And he'd ask us to imagine being in that laboratory, and you can imagine this is decades of work, decades and decades of failed experiments, failed attempts, understandings that were wrong. And these are some of the most brilliant scientists in the world. In that laboratory, decades, they'd given their entire life to doing this. And finally on that day, they finally discovered how to do it, and the experiment worked. And Nubian asked us to imagine, imagine the exhilaration of that moment. Imagine everybody, cheers, high fives, hugs, just the, just the overwhelming joy of that moment that after all of these years, they finally figured out how to split the atom. It would be a, a monumental human achievement. And then Nubian says that if you imagine being in that laboratory after that moment of exhilaration, the silence of dread took over that room. Because suddenly everybody in that laboratory now asks the question, but what will we do with this? We spend so much time asking 
whether we could. And yet we oftentimes lack the resources to ask whether we should. What was that dread that fell over that laboratory? It's what the ancients call wisdom. We had technology. We had data. We had information. But did we have wisdom? Where can wisdom be found? Let me, a quick quote. This is from Sigmund Freud in what I think is his best book. It's called Civilization and Discontents. He observes this. He says, science and technology are an actual fulfillment of almost all of our fairy tale wishes. Today, we have come very close to the attainment of our ideals. Man has, as it were, become a kind of prosthetic god. And when he puts on all of his auxiliary organs, he's truly magnificent. But present-day man does not feel happy in his godlike character. We have become, as it were, a kind of prosthetic God with all of our technologies, with all of our abilities, with all of our human ingenuity. And yet Freud observes present-day man does not feel happy in his godlike character. What is that lack of happiness? It's what the ancients would call wisdom. Beyond the data, beyond the information, beyond even knowledge, it's the human race asking the questions of why are we here? Where are we heading? What is life for? What are we supposed to be doing while we are upon this earth that we are flooded with information and yet we are starved as a society for wisdom? Because here's what I find interesting. These questions of what are we here for, Uh, What is the source of true happiness? How do we face suffering and handle suffering well? These are all questions, by the way, that science and technology can't answer. Not because there's anything wrong with science, but because science was never meant to answer these questions. So science, the way that science works is that it takes all of our questions and it reduces it down to if you understand the cause, then you can predict and control the effect. That's science. So don't ask questions of purpose or intent or meaning. Ask questions of cause. And if you can answer the cause question, then you can predict and control the effects. That's the power of science. And so the human race, we created this tool. We fashioned this tool called science. And we use this tool that that flattens all of our questions to questions of cause and effect. And we use this tool, tool and we looked at the entire world, and the entire world suddenly unlocked all of its secrets for us. It was incredible what science has been able to accomplish. And yet, the human race, what have we done? We've created this tool that says the questions of purpose or intent are excluded. We created this tool. We looked out at a world, and you know what we concluded? There is no purpose or meaning or intent. Do you see the irony of that? It's like taking an x-ray machine and looking out at the world and concluding that skin doesn't exist. It's like taking a metal detector and looking out in the world and concluding plastic and wood and fabric don't exist. We created a tool that can only see cause and effect And then we concluded that there is no meaning or purpose, that this is the tragedy of modern life. And what the author is saying is that you will not find wisdom. 
in secular and scientific reasoning that as incredible as human ingenuity is, as incredible as all of our technology is, when suffering blindsides you, it cannot produce any answers. That science and secular reasoning cannot detect a why in the universe. It can only detect the how. And so it can buffer suffering. It can distract you from suffering. It can maybe help medicate you in suffering, but it can never make sense of it. Not because there's anything wrong with science, but it's because science was never meant to answer these questions. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying all tech is bad. I'm as grateful as anybody for flushing toilets and wa- running water and shower and smart. I'm as grateful as anybody. But when the world is flattened down to the, what the, the things that only science can detect, we be, find ourselves trapped in the iron cage of cause and effect. And there is no why to be discovered. And yet, there's something in all of us that says suffering should not be. And we rail against it. And I want to suggest to you, especially if you're here and you're not quite sure what you believe about the Christian faith, I want to suggest to you, what if that outrage at suffering is actually the truest impulse in you? What if that outrage at suffering is actually a spiritual homing signal that your creator put in you so that you would never be satisfied with the merely scientific reasoning of the world? This is what the playwright wants you to consider. That what if there is a different kind of knowing, a different kind of understanding? And when suffering blindsides you, this is the kind of knowing that you begin to search for. So that's the first point. You're not going to find wisdom. This wisdom for suffering can't be gained through scientific reasoning. But secondly, the second point is this. This wisdom also cannot be gained through religious reasoning. So for all of you who are here and you believe and maybe you grew up in the church, you consider yourself a religious person, you might have been thinking, sitting there thinking, yeah, you know, all those bad secular people, they don't like God, they're anti this, anti that. The playwright would look at you and say, oh, don't, don't jump to some conclusions. You've got your issues too. That even our religious reasoning won't get us to understand suffering. Now here's what, the, here's what it says. Look at verse 13 to 15. And then we're going to jump down to verse 21 as well. But it says this, No mortal comprehends wisdom's worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not in me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. Verse 20, Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? 21, it is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the sky, in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. Now, what is the author saying there? He's saying, look, you can go beyond just the this-worldly reasoning of science, and you can start doing things like contemplating your own mortality. You can think about there's a world beyond the world of the land of the living. 
you can start to get philosophical and you can begin to think through all these questions that can go on a pilgrimage across the entire land of the living and you still won't discover wisdom. You can plumb the depths of the sea. You can even go into, you can look in, in the jaws of destruction and death itself. You can go look at grave, the grave itself and the grave will only say, we've only heard rumors of this wisdom. Do you see what the author is saying? It's not just secular reasoning that won't give you wisdom. It's all the religious reasoning about death and mortality and another world. That won't get you the, re- the wisdom that you need as well. Now, here's why. Isn't that a strange thing for the Bible to be saying? But here's why. What the author wants us to see is that both secular reasoning and religious reasoning, they both have the same shape. They're actually just mirror images of each other. Let me explain what I mean by that. Scientific reasoning says the universe is run by impersonal physical laws. Religious reasoning tends to say that the universe is run by impersonal moral laws. You see? Scientific reasoning says if I understand the physical laws, if I can understand the laws of physical cause and effect, then I'll be able to predict and control my environment. Religious reasoning says if I can understand the moral and spiritual laws, if I can understand how karma works, if I can understand the kind of energy I'm putting out into the world and the energy that it's going to bring back to me, if I can understand the moral and spiritual laws of the world, then what? I can predict and control my environment. So much of our religious activity is our attempts to control the spiritual and moral environment. Like Christian, be honest. How many times have you told God, God, if you just give me this, just, just this one thing, I promise I'll never do that ever again. I promise I'll start doing Be honest. What's happening there? You're still functioning in a religious world of cause and effect, of exchange. You're still saying, or, or maybe you think, gosh, you know, I had such a bad week. I must be putting out all kinds, all kinds of negative energy out in the world. I got to change my energy. Some of you think that way, don't you? It's this religious world. It's this moral world of cause and effect. Now, here's the key. A lot of times if you think, if you're hearing us talk about conversions, convert from a secular way to see the world, you might be thinking we're saying convert from a secular way to see the world to now see it in a religious way. And we're not saying that at all. When you convert from a merely secular way to a religious way, all you've done is you've added a layer of moral, of God, of theology, but you're still trying to control the world so that things will go well for you. You haven't converted at all. The two actually have the exact same shape, the reasoning. They're actually mirror images of one another. And that's exactly what Job's friends have been saying all along, right? You might notice that now as you may try to make sense, go back. What's Job's friends saying? They're, they're all, all of them saying this. They say all suffering in this world has a moral cause. And so Job, if you're suffering, it's because you've done something that caused that moral suffering. And so everything is this view, a world of cause and effect. We live in a world of moral order, therefore you will reap what you will sow. That every moral action has its equal and opposite reaction. 
that whatever negativity you're putting out in the world will come back to you as negativity. That this is the world that Job's friends have inhabited. So they said to Job, if you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong. God has created an ordered world. And if you weren't suffering, if you didn't do anything wrong, there would be no suffering coming back at you. Do you see how they're basically mirror images of one another? One's just physical, and the other one is moral or spiritual. The person who actually helped me to see this very clearly is none other than the great theologian Bono, who I'm recognizing as I get older. Not everybody knows who Bono is anymore. He's a lead singer of this group called U2, who was a big deal. They're a big deal. Just trust me on that if you don't know who that is. Um, But he says this in an interview. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, every action is met with an equal opposite reaction. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all of that you reap what you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep doo-doo. Uh, he says, I'm holding out for grace. And what he's getting at there is the only hope that you and I have to be set free from the iron cage of cause and effect is if there is a grace, if there is a love that's willing to interrupt? That's the question. Is there a love? Is there a possibility for love to interrupt? And the playwright wants you to walk away from his play asking this one question. What if this universe is not an iron cage of cause and effect? What if at the center, the the animating, pulsating center of the universe isn't a blind force, isn't physical laws, isn't indifferent moral principles? What if the animating center of the entire universe is a loving, seeing, purposing, personal God? A God, yes, who who created a world of order, but a God who can at any time interrupt that order. Because he would say, if only that is true, only if that's true, can your suffering and my suffering ever even come close to having any kind of meaning. A purposing God who is up to something that you or I can never fully understand. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I'll be real quick. When I was 21 years old, my father passed away. And it was a real formative uh, kind of experience of suffering for me. It was right after I decided to go into seminary. And so it was almost one of these, like, wait, think, talk about cause and effect. Like, wait, I just gave my whole life, gave up all this stuff to go into ministry, and then the cause and effect of that moment was you took my dad, you know, 21 years old. And to this day, now, you know, it's been t- almost 25 years now, which is crazy to me. I've had more of my life without my dad than I had with my dad, which is kind of a, bizarre, a strange thing for me to contemplate. But to this day, I tell people, even as a pastor, I tell people, I don't have any answers for why God did that. And any time I've tried to come up with answers, oh, it's because he made me a more compassionate person. He made me able to minister to people who've uh, experienced loss and grief. Lots of uh, good reasons. But in the end, I look at all that and say, 
none of those answers satisfy me. Uh, none of those answers are good enough for me. And that to this day, on the day that I die, one of the first questions I'll have when I sit down with God in heaven, I'm like, all right, let's sit down. I just got this one big question I got to ask you. Like, what the heck? Right, like, what the heck? That was totally not worth it. There's lots of different ways to go about it. Like, what the heck? And then to have that conversation. But in the midst of that, I tell people, as a pastor, I hate giving people reasons why God is allowing suffering. Because it will never be satisfying. But what I do tell people is in the midst of that suffering, there is a God you can trust who is in control. That is the only hope that you or I or anyone will ever have for our suffering to make any sense whatsoever. If that simply isn't true, even the question of what is the meaning of suffering is a meaningless question. If there is no personal God, if there is no God who purposes things that you and I can't understand, if that's not true, then suffering is not a bug of the, light, of the app of life. Suffering is a feature of the app of life. It doesn't mean anything's wrong. It simply states this is what it is. We live in a world that's red in tooth and claw. We live in a world where the strong eat the weak. It is the, it is the functioning feature of the universe we live in. But if there is a God who is personal, if there is a God who loves, if there is a God who interrupts and breaks the, the, the iron chain of cause and effect for higher purposes, then and only then do we have a chance to understand or to, to know that there's a possibility of meaning behind all of the agony of life. You see that? Let me move on and wrap up. I gave away most of my third point anyway, so we're almost done, okay? So the first point, we can't get wisdom through scientific reasoning, secular reasoning. we also not going to get wisdom through religious reasoning. The only way we can get wisdom is if there is a God who comes in and speaks to us. That's the point. Look at verse 23 and 24. It says, God understands the way to wisdom. He alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And then verse 28, and he said to the human race, fear, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. So what the author is saying is this, as long as we're just stuck in this world, no matter how much we explore, we could dive into the depths of rivers, we could dive to the depths of the grave, we could dig under mountains, but as long as our entire mode of understanding is limited to this world, there are no answers to suffering. But if at the center of the universe is a personal God who's willing to break through and tell us things, then it might all have meaning. Then we might actually know that there's a greater purpose behind all of this. Because the most satisfying kind of knowledge is when a person tells us what he's up to and what he's doing. That you could explore scientifically for ages and still never understand that there's a God who has purposes unless he comes and speaks. Let me try to give you an example of this. There are lots of ways that you can try to get to know me as a person. I have a science background. So some of you might say I'm a hard sciences guy, pure sciences. So I'm going to break Abe Cho down into his constituent parts. And I know it's mostly 
carbon and hydrogen and oxygen. And if I could break Abraham Cho down into the most constituent parts, then I'll fully understand who he is at a molecular level. It's true. That all will be true for me. Or some of you might say, well, that's a little extreme. Uh, if you look at my body and the systems, my anatomy, so there's a circulatory system and a digestive tract and, a, you know, all these. If I can understand all of that, I can get all of his health records and I know exactly what his cholesterol is, his blood pressure, and all, then I'll get to know who Abe Cho is. And again, all that would be accurate and potentially helpful, life-saving information. Um, others of you might be like, yeah, see, that's why the hard sciences, that's, I'm not down with that. I would much rather go and uh, look up stories about who you are. Maybe interview your mom. Go talk to your brothers and sisters. Uh, I would f- figure out what's happened in your history. When did, when did your family move to the U.S.? All these sorts of things. And that, again, would probably be getting closer where you're taking kind of a historical or journalistic approach to knowing me. But you know the best way for you to get to know me? is this Friday, take me out to a really nice steak restaurant. <laughs> and splurge on the big ribeye. Buy the best bottle of wine on the wine list. And over that dinner, just ask me some questions. What was it like growing up in your family? What do you hope for for your kids? What brought you to New York? What made you go into ministry? What do you see yourself doing in 20, 25 years? You see, the most satisfying kind of knowledge is not data. The most satisfying kinds of knowledge, the most meaningful, is the kind of knowledge that you can only get from self-disclosure. And what the Bible is telling us is that there is a God who did not leave you to merely gather data about who he might be. But there's a God who says, let me tell you what I'm up to. Let me tell you my heart. Let me tell you where I want to take this entire, at times, terrible and terrifying story. Let me tell you where I'm taking it. It's a self-disclosure of God. Now, here's what's utterly shocking about the gospel because it tells us that when the true playwright of the entire universe when the true playwright came on stage at intermission he didn't just come with a monologue to teach us doctrines about suffering that when the true playwright at intermission stepped onto the stage of human history do you know what he did he suffered himself He was beaten and bloodied. He was rejected and abandoned. That when God Almighty, the great playwright of all of history, steps onto the stage, he essentially takes Job's spot. And he says, let me suffer for you. Let me suffer in your place. And if that's what the God of the Bible has done, if that's what this revealing God has done, do you know what that means? It means we don't have all the answers. But what we do know is that if this is what God is like, then he can be trusted with my whole life. I remember, and I'll, I'll close with this, a story that I heard um, uh, I was at a conference I was at, and it was a, a mother who was sharing about how she was out at the playground with one of her kids. And, you know, the familiar playground, <clears throat> one that had gone to a lot. 
But uh, they hadn't been there in a while because of COVID. And so their kids had just gotten much bigger, bigger than she thought they did over the two years. And so they went and they went back and they went to the same spots and the kid went into the same swing that he always went into, but it gotten way too big. And so he slid into the swing and totally got stuck. So couldn't get out of the swing. So the mom went there, was trying to do everything, pull, couldn't, get, could, couldn't get this child out. So now the child is like freaking out a little bit, right, because like it hurts. I'm trying to get, she's trying to pull out. We got to get you out of here. We don't know. They ended up having to call, like, the fire department because it was, like, stuck, stuck. And so the fire department comes. You can imagine if you're this kid, right, all the sirens coming, firemen in all their uniforms and, like, jaws of life. I don't know if they had the jaws of life. That's how it Jaws of life coming at you, right, to this kid stuck in this swing. And the kid's, like, totally freaking out. And the mom's, now, you know, if you're, if you're your parent, you're getting a little anxious, too. You're like, I know this is fine, but I'm kind of getting anxious here. And so the kid starts to freak out because they're literally coming at him with these clippers to kind of clip out the, the swing, right? Freaking out. And the mom takes the kid by the head, and she says, don't look at anything else. Look at me. Just look at me. And the child calmed down even though men in black suits were coming with sharp objects. Mom says, don't look at anything else. Look at me. I don't know exactly what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord is wisdom. I think it's something like that, though. That you could be afraid of bad things. You can have fear of things because there's all these bad, threatening things around you. But you could also be afraid of good and beautiful and lovely things. And when it says the fear of the Lord is wisdom, I think what it's saying, it's Jesus saying, don't look at any of that. Look at me. Give me all of your attention. Fix your eyes. Fix your heart. Fix your life. Let me be the only fear in your life. Look at me. So friends, in the storms of life, in the midst of all of our sufferings, the true playwright of all of this has stepped in, has suffered in your place, even when the suffering was yours because you deserved it. When the suffering came because of your sin, he stood in your place. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that in your darkest moments, you will know that you will never be forsaken. And it's Jesus saying, don't look at all that. Look at me. The fear of this Lord is where you'll find wisdom in the face of suffering. And so as we come to the table, let's fix our eyes on him again today. Let's pray. Lord, no matter how much we reflect on the topic of suffering, we never know or fully understand all the whys, all the reasons. We don't get explanations that are always clear or satisfying. So, Lord, while we don't get the answers to the why, we do get an answer, which is a who. And you ask us to look at you, to look at a God who wasn't powerless in the face of suffering. You look at a God who isn't directly responsible inflicting all of our suffering. You've asked us to look at a God who's willing to take our place in suffering. And so, Lord, as we come to this table, this table is a table of suffering. It's where a body is broken. 
It's where blood is poured out. And as we come to this table, Lord, I pray that you would help us to commune with you in our wounds and recognize we might not get a why, or at least not a why that's fully satisfying. But, Lord, we get a who. And you're right here at this table. And, Lord, we pray that the fear of this Lord, Lord, that would be enough. And that would give us the power to face suffering. And it would drain the power of suffering. Drain, drain suffering of its power over our lives. Lord, we ask that you do that now. We're weak. We can't do it ourselves. We need your spirit. Do that now as we feast upon your body and partake of your blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.